So here's something fun. On Being has its very own poetry radio project. Over the years, many of our guests have brought poems into their reflections on the mystery and meaning of life. I've carried these poems with me, and now we've put them all in one spot for you to listen, read, and enjoy. Go to onbeing.org poetry and find voices like Mary Oliver, Wendell Berry, David White, and many, many more. Again, that's onbeing.org poetry. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. Listen to our produced show with them wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Hello. Is that Adam? It is. Hi, it's Krista. Hey, Krista, how are you? (laughs) Good. It's great to have you on the other end of the conversation again. So good to hear your voice. Do you have Cheryl already? No, uh, they're they're waiting on her, but but all the pieces are in place. Great. Oh, we do have her. <laughs> Hi, is that Cheryl? Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Oh, she doesn't have headphones on. Okay. So, Adam, quickly, there's a piece in Fast Company this month that I have to thank you for. Yes, congratulations. For that flurry of <laughs> flurry of correspondence. That was amazing. I hope, I hope there's more to come. Congratulations. <laughs> Do I have to put on a headset? I can. Yeah. Hi, Cheryl. Sitting here screaming is not it. Adam, can you hear me? I can, yeah. So can Krista. Hi, Krista. Hi, can you hear me? I cannot. Krista, I'm so excited to meet you. I'm excited to meet you, too. Thanks for taking time to do this. No, thank you for, like, the amazing work you've done. And I know this is a big deal to have us on, and we're, like, super excited about it. <laughs> Great. Well, and we're in three time zones. But I'm understanding that you you two can see each other. Is that no, right? No. We or were, you will be able to? I wanted to. to. I wanted to see all of you. You, too. But we can't see anyone. <laughs> But I can see myself okay, well, looking like an idiot in this headset. All right. No, let me just say I really believe in um, everything that the human voice alone can communicate. And so um, so I'll hold the space and we may, you know, if you talk over each other or we talk over each other, I mean, that happens in a real conversation, too. I'm. I just don't worry about it. And the tech, you know, the the technology is great. So. We will be able to That's edit great. things and if we, we need to. And we just got this up. I can, I can see Adam now, and he can oh, see Oh, okay, me. good. Um, and also, I know you're in Minneapolis, so that's um, this is our first joint interview. We haven't done one together, so that's a big deal. And it's kind of nice for me that you're in Minneapolis, which is where Dave is from, so it feels good. I know. Actually, I did. I, I hadn't thought about that. We had a colleague working with us when, when he died who— um, knew his family really well. Who is it? I'm just that's just coming back to me. Um, Michelle Keeley was her name, um, hmm. but yeah, I had forgotten that. Um, well, I said to Adam, I don't usually do book interviews, um, which I think both of you will understand. I mean, we've all three done this because when you're out on book tour, you start, you say the same things, and um, 
I really like to have a more searching conversation. And, and so we're going to wait to broadcast this until your book is out. But I was I was very happy that we were able to set this up, and I'm happy that it's the first conversation. Yeah, so we, we are be not the first time you're saying that's these right. Things. We haven't yeah. said this a hundred times at all. We haven't said right. it at all. So. Right, right, and it happens by necessity, and it's not necessarily bad, but it's just not what we do. Yeah, on on being. And if I can just jump in for one second to yeah. say it is such a treat to have a chance to listen to two of the wisest people I know dialogue. So I'm really <laughs> thrilled that the two of you have a chance to meet at least by uh, by voice. I know. It's great. Well, let's jump in. Adam, you need to move know... over because all I can see is your ear. <laughs> like literally and your ear. That was ear. by design. I like, no, like, I like my ear. Move over a little bit more. Your ear. Like, okay, there we go. Got it. All right. As attractive you know, and interesting as your ear is. <laughs> well, I'm 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 a little bit sorry that I can't see that right now, but um, okay. So I um uh, you you may you may or may not know that I usually I, I I start almost all my interviews with a question about the religious and spiritual background of someone's childhood, and I, I do that for many reasons, and. Um, including where it plants people. What I thought I'd do when I when I do a public event or a, a, an event with a conversation with more than one person, I I, I like to a, a, adapt that a little bit. So what what I thought I'd like to, or I think I'd like to start with the two of you is, um, um, to ask about the religious and spiritual background of your life. And I've over time come to understand that phrase, the spiritual background of your life, is you know very expansive. Um, and if looking back, you see this notion of what you understand resilience to be now in there, either taught to you or embodied, you know, perhaps with other names. So, Cheryl, do you want to start? Sure. Um, you know, I was raised in kind of an odd mix of reform and conservative Judaism. I, mm -hmm. My parents kept a kosher home. We celebrated Shabbat. My bat mitzvah was something that I took very seriously. My parents took very seriously. Um, and religion, sorry, I'm taking my earring off. Sorry, let me do it again. Sorry, my earring was banging. <laughs> do you need me to start over or I can just go from no, there? No, 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 okay. no. We can just, yeah. just keep going. Yeah. Um, religion was something that, that gave kind of a structure, I think, to life's the calendar holiday. You know, Judaism starts on a different calendar year. And I, I believed that the year started, you know, around mm -hmm. when school started in September, October with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And I think, you know, when I lost Dave and lost Dave so suddenly, religion is in many ways the first place you turn because it, it gives yeah. you, it gives you some things you're supposed to do. You know, religion told us that we had to have a, a funeral quickly it was only supposed to be a few days. Religion told us that we were supposed to sit shiva, meaning people came over to the house. Uh, religion told us how we were going to uh, perform the burial. There's this uh, in Judaism when you um, when you bury someone, you lower a casket into the ground, and the people themselves, the people closest to them, shovel dirt on the casket. And I, mm. I, I buried my grandparents, so I had done that before. And in the face of something so sudden and so tragic, the traditions around the burial, the funeral, the shiva, you know, impossible though they were to live live through, 
I think were actually very important and very comforting because without them, I just would have had not known what to do. Um, yeah. And so I think religion, yeah. religion was super important in those early days. You know, I belong to a synagogue. I don't spend a lot of time with my rabbi, but the rabbi was at my house every day and every night counseling me, uh, trying to counsel my kids, uh, performing a service as part of the shiva that we could all participate in. And so I think religion gave me a way to at least understand what I was supposed to do in those in those early days. That was, I think, hugely important because death, death ushers in such nothingness, such blank. I thought of it as a void, you know, sucking you in and pushing on my chest so I could barely breathe. And religion was something to hang on to in that in that void. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot there. We'll we'll keep going with um, as we move forward. Um, Adam, what? How do you think about the roots of resilience in your childhood? Um, and if there's a spiritual way that you see that, you know, it's <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> um, as I as I think back to to my childhood, I feel like there were there were a lot of moments where I felt like I didn't have answers mm-hmm. to the hardest things that happened in my life. Uh, you know, I, like Cheryl, I, I remember losing my grandparents and you know not knowing where to turn for explanations, for understanding, for meaning. Um, and you know, I think in a way, it's <laughs> it's one of the reasons that I was. I was originally so drawn to psychology. Um, mm. Interesting is you know I was I was trying to figure out like how do how do we make sense of something that is impossible to to really understand, um, especially as a kid. And you know, l- looking back, um, I think it was you know I guess it was going to it was going to synagogue and and asking those kinds of questions um, that really got me interested in resilience in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but looking back, I, I, I was constantly asking like, what, what, what happens to people after they die? Mm. And, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that our lives are as meaningful as possible? And I think that, you know, that's (laughs) in some ways, that's, that's a question of like, how, given, given the human condition, how do we find resilience? Mm. Can, can I can I add a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So two yeah. other thoughts. Um, one is that I think I'm I'm Jewish. I was raised I was raised to be Jewish. I I believe in my religion, but I think I also benefited from ideas from other religions as I went through this. So, for example, in Judaism, mm-hmm. there really isn't a concept of heaven, but the concept yeah. of heaven of a place that Dave could go, where he would be. Ha- happy where my kids and I might see him again. You know, his father died 16 years before. That's mm-hmm. very comforting. And I know my kids asked a lot if daddy was in heaven with his his father. And my daughter particularly would say she knows that daddy is with his daddy and they're together in mm-hmm. heaven. And I think that was incredibly comforting. Some of the basic teachings of Buddhism, that life is suffering, that we have to live through that right, suffering right. and embrace that suffering were really help, really helpful. 
The other place religion really matters was this period of mourning, so this Shaloshim period. I didn't mm-hmm. actually know that the period of mourning for a spouse was 30 days until Dave died because the only periods of mourning I'd ever observed were for a parent. So my parents mourning for their, grand- for their parents and me mourning for my grandparents. And in the Jewish religion, that was a year. And I knew it was a year and you're supposed to say Shiva. You're so, sorry, you're supposed to say the Kaddish through that year. And so when Dave died, the rabbi, my rabbi and another rabbi who's a friend told me that the period of mourning for a spouse is 30 days. And they're supposed to kind of have that sense of wrapping up Shaloshim for a spouse. And um, that really led me to think about where I was at that 30 days, which is what led me to do that Facebook post that was a very important part of the story of my recovery and this book. But again, it was rooted in religion, that there was religious meaning to that 30-day period. I see how it, it created a container, obviously, for you to mourn, but also to reflect um, I mean, you and you wrote that post um, that was in 2015. Was that July 2015? The 30 day post was um, 30 days, so it would have been like June 1st, 30, or June June maybe May 31st. Yeah, we can right. look, but yeah, it was right. 30 days. Yeah. Dave yeah. died on May 1st, so it yeah. would be 30 days. And actually, yeah. I think it might be 30 days from the burial. I can look at exactly what day the post is. It's, oh, it's okay. It's I the mean, Jewish marking but, of 30 but, days. You yeah. know. But it was amazing. I mean, you, you, this, this stunning three sentences. I have lived 30 years in these 30 days. Yeah. I am 30 years sadder. I feel like I am 30 years wiser. Yeah. I mean, it was a long 30 days, right? The longest, yeah. the longest of my life by far. And uh, hmm. I was hmm. in many ways marking those days because every single one was just a victory to live through. And again, it was my religion which gave me this this framework of this is a 30-day period. And I, um, it wasn't just the grief, right? Grief can be so overwhelming. I felt like I was sucked into a void where I would never really be able to catch my breath. My brother-in-law described it as a boot sitting on his chest. But mm. it was also the isolation because I always had very friendly, easy relationships with neighbors, colleagues. You know, when I dropped my kids off at school, I would say hi to everyone. When I went to work, we'd chat before and after meetings. And that all went away after Dave died because I think people were afraid to say the wrong thing, so they often said nothing at all. So as I moved through those days, I was feeling increasingly isolated. I would go to work and people just looked at me like I was a ghost or a deer. They were a deer in the headlights. They they didn't know what to say. And so as that 30-day period approached, I wrote this Facebook post based on my journals, which expressed how I felt. And the night before I went to sleep thinking, there is no way I'm posting this thing. It is too raw, too revealing, you know. And then I woke up the next really? morning. Really? Oh, yeah. No, uh-huh. I definitely wasn't uh-huh. going to post it. But then I woke up the next morning and, you know, my religion told me this was supposed to be kind of the end of morning. And it was not. And it was not going to be. And um, I felt so overwhelmingly awful that I thought, you know what, I might as well post this thing because things can't get worse. <laughs> And it really made a difference because, you know, a friend of mine at work said that she had been driving by my house and not coming in. She started coming in. People at work right, admitted right. they were terrified when they saw me of saying the wrong thing. Um, you know, strangers posted about their experiences. A woman posted from the NICU that she had just gave birth or she had one surviving twin and hmm. one had died. And so she was struggling to find the strength to give the surviving twin a, a wonderful life. And other people posted on them. And I felt less alone. 
And so the power of Shaloshim for me was that it was this kind of mark where I took a step. I took a mm-hmm. step to share. And that step really helped me because I still had all the grief and I still was in the void and the boot pulling on, pushing on my chest, but I, but I wasn't as isolated anymore. People weren't walking up to me and saying, how are you? Right. Or, or not walking up to you Correct. because they didn't know what to say. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it, it, um, this book you've written together, um, I, I'm so happy to talk to both of you because one thing that radiates from the pages is, is it's not just that you're co-authors, you're, it, that you're friends, right? That it grows out of friendship. And, in fact, as I, as I think I understand it from the book, I mean, Adam got on a plane and came out to, to be with you. Twice. Twice. <laughs> um, so did not walk away. Um, I uh, And um, you'd gotten to know each other together with Dave, right? When Dave was CEO at SurveyMonkey. And I guess, Adam, you'd spoken. And you had dinner. And you started collaborating. And it sounds like, like Adam, you started talking. Like, like I mean, that... that that um, that sense of not knowing how to move forward, Cheryl, that, that Adam, you actually right away were bringing in. That one thing you say is that you thought that Adam started talking about resilience right away, that you thought that this was about the ability, could you endure this pain? But the question, Adam, you were asking is how, and instead ask how you can become resilient. And there's this language in the book, resilience is the strength and speed of our response to adversity, and we can build it. It isn't about having a backbone. It's about strengthening the muscles around our backbone. Such a helpful image and new. Yeah, I guess, you know, for <clears throat> for me, this, this started when... Um, Dave and I really connected, and I was so impressed. He had he had read a book that I wrote, uh, and just had such deep curiosity. And you know, first of all, I was I was stunned when I met him that he had taken the time to read a sentence that I had written, let mm-hmm. alone a whole book. But that he had thought so carefully about the ideas, and you know, the, I had been writing about generosity, and it was instantly clear that that was a core value in Dave's life. And I was really taken aback by how how sincerely you know he he started the conversation, and I you know I remember him saying you know I'd, I'd love to continue this conversation. And um, after I, I went to speak at SurveyMonkey, um, I went to Dave and Charles for dinner, and I I came out of that dinner thinking I, 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 these people are just. They, they live everything I try to study. Mm. The, the generosity, the curiosity is so unusual. And um, we, we started becoming, you know, becoming friends through that, I guess. Although I, I didn't realize we were friends until Cheryl told me we were friends. I guess it's a <laughs> Facebook thing. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> D- Dave was, uh, you know, was one of the leaders that I really look up, looked up to, but also, you know, as, as a, a husband and a father, like the, the mm-hmm. kind of person that I wanted to be. And uh, it was, I mean, it was just devastating for all of us um, when we got the news. And I remember talking with my wife, Allison, about, you know, whether, whether I should go, you know, it might be a time that it would be difficult for people to, to have company. And, you know, she, she said, no, of course you go. 
so I flew out, and I remember um, being at the at at the the shiva afterward, and people were were starting to leave, and Cheryl and her family and some close friends were there, and and she said, "Stay." And you know, what, what do you what do you do in that situation? But but stay. And she, I think a lot of people would have been consumed with their own grief. Uh, Cheryl's question was, "What do I do for my kids? How how do I help them?" Hmm. And all of a sudden, I felt like all these hours that I've spent um, learning about psychology, about you know how to deal with tough situations, um, like there was a purpose to those hours all of a sudden. Hmm. And you know maybe I had some knowledge that I could share that you know that would help our kids through it. And so we we started talking about what do we know about resilience? Where does it come from? Um, how do you you know how do you help kids find strength and they're just the, the worst of situations. And uh, I just, uh, I felt like, you know, that was, that was, it was literally the only thing I could think to do in that, in that moment. And, uh, and <laughs> then, yeah. uh, that's, I guess that was the beginning of the book. You know, you know, am, um, sorry, go oh, on. Sorry, Did you want to say something? Yeah. You know, Dave, gave, yeah. Dave gave me a lot of amazing things. And one of the things Dave gave me was Adam. I mean, Dave had a lot of speakers at SurveyMonkey. Adam was the only one he ever invited over for dinner. We were very protective. <laughs> we're very protective of family dinner. People we did not know did not come over for dinner with our kids. But he said, this guy is incredible. I invited him over for dinner. Which I, I don't know if Dave ever did that. And Adam and I started talking about his work. And I had read his, his book, too. And I asked him, you know, have you ever cut your data by gender? And then we started yeah, talking right. about gender. And we started writing together. We wrote four New York Times pieces together before yeah. Dave died. And in that process, you know, I had done all this research on on women. Adam had done all this research on giving and taking and meaning and motivation. And he would bring the research and I would bring the research I had. And we, we wrote together. And then when Dave died, I mean, I was in a total fog. I didn't invite anyone to the funeral. You know, people came and Adam showed up. And I remember just in the fog of I don't couldn't even remember who was standing in front of me I was so relieved Adam was there and that night people were leaving and I asked him to say and I just looked at him and said what do I do to get my kids through this like there has yeah. to be I for me the research is incredibly comforting because there's my experience there's other individual experience but if people have studied this and figured out what works on large numbers of people that's better and Adam just followed up. He said, yes, there's research, and I'm looking at it. And I, and then he would literally send me, like, research summaries. Like, okay, there's been one <laughs> longitudinal study of children who have lost fathers or, lost, sorry, lost parents and lost and been and gone through divorce. Here's what it says. And for me, that was incredibly comforting. And then I would started calling him more and more with, okay, here's what happened today. And Here's how I feel, and it's never going to feel better. And Adam would say, that's called permanence. That's one of the traps. Okay. And right. No, but for me, the research and the data, I, I'm not saying it would be for everyone, but for me, it was unbelievably helpful. So personalization, mm -hmm. blaming myself. You know, I blamed myself that Dave died. The early reports were that he died falling off an exercise machine. So I thought if I only found him sooner— yeah. He would be alive. Right. And my, my brother is a neurosurgeon. So this is his field. And he sat there with me at first patiently and increasingly with more anxiety and, and passion in his voice. Cheryl, Dave did not die falling off an exercise machine. I don't care what mm. the early report mm. said. Mm. The autopsy He is, said there must be something else going yeah, on. Yeah, we, we were, we, you know, an autopsy takes some time. So we were in the, waiting for the autopsy yeah. report. And he said the autopsy is going to tell us why he died because something happened to make him fall. 
He kept saying if Dave, fell off an, if Dave fell off an exercise machine, he would have broken an arm, not died. He did not die that way. And, and then I would say, well, he's like, Cheryl, you could not have found him. And then when we got the autopsy report and it was coronary artery disease, you know, it wasn't diagnosed. And should mm-hmm. I have known all that stuff? And it wasn't. And then when I finally got over, okay, I'm not a doctor. It's not my fault I didn't diagnose a disease that his doctors didn't diagnose. I blame myself for disrupting my mom's life, disrupting, you know, the Facebook client meetings, just disrupting mm-hmm. Adam's life. And Adam said to me, he said, if you don't get over the personalization, you are not going to recover. And if you don't recover, your kids can't recover. That's what wow. psychologists know. And that, I think you said somewhere that he told you to ban the word sorry, that you were always saying sorry, yes, sorry, sorry. But the reason, oh. the reason that was so important was <laughs> he could prove it. He said mm-hmm, people have mm-hmm. studied this. And, you know, forgiving yourself mm-hmm. is a really hard thing. But if you tell me if I don't forgive myself, my kids are never going to recover, I'm willing to do anything. And so Adam just kept weighing in at these critical moments with, here's how to think about this. Here's what we know. And then the most important moment was I got this letter. It was horrible. You know, a lot of people, Uh, a lot of people. I think I know which letter you're talking about in your book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, a lot of people have been through grief and had lost parents and children. And, you know, they said to me, you're not going to feel this way forever. You're not going to feel this way forever. But I did not believe them. And then I got a letter, and I'm sure the letter was incredibly well-meaning. It was from a woman who had lost her husband, and it basically said, I'm never going to feel better because she still doesn't feel better, and her friend doesn't feel better. And I called Adam and read the letter and said, okay, you're wrong. You're telling me I'm going to feel better, Mm. but here's a letter. Oh, gosh. You're wrong. You keep telling me I'm going to feel better. Another data point. Here's another data point, and I know her, and I don't know a lot of people who lost spouses young, and she did, and she's not okay. Mm -hmm. And then Adam showed up. I went to my son's football game, I don't know, a couple hours later, and I don't remember the exact timing, but there Adam walked in. And I was like, what are you doing here? And he said, I, I came to make sure you know that you're wrong, that this is going to get better. And it's an incredible act of friendship, an incredible act of friendship. And those early five months where I was writing my personal journal, I sent a bunch of those entries to some of my closest friends and to Adam. And Adam showed up in those months with research for me. Summaries. Mm, Here's mm. what this says. Here's what this says. And for me, that was unbelievably helpful. And after that period passed, I think one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book was I want to give other people what I am so lucky to have had, which is access to someone who's so brilliant and understands the psychology so deeply so that when they lose their spouses, they know what they can do for their kids. When they are blaming themselves. They know that it's going to thwart their recovery. And I wanted to share the research that Adam had shared with me with other people. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful and it it does that and and we'll keep talking about some of those things you learned but also the fact that the two of you kind of model a way to be present to others. Um and Adam, I want to ask you you know, I started hearing this term resilience emerging um, a few years ago, kind of early 21st century, often in the context of social infrastructure or, you know, resilient ecosystems, resilient cities like after Hurricane Sandy. How do you how to rebuild and plan, assuming that the unexpected catastrophe will come, but planning so that 
so that what knocks out one part of the system won't bring down the whole thing. And and you're talking about resilient human beings. And I'm curious about, is this a term that that has had kind of a new birth or a renaissance in psychology as well? Yeah, it, it is. So it, it started to gain a lot of traction in the 1990s, uh, late 90s, when Marty Seligman, a colleague of mine here at Penn, uh, pioneered this this whole initiative on positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, as psychologists, we know a lot about how to treat suffering. Um, we can, you know, we can help people become less depressed and less anxious, but we don't know a whole lot about how to help people flourish. And, you know, if like, it's, it's nice to, to cure some of the worst ills that people face in their lives, but what about really living the best lives we can? How do we do that? And there were, there were a lot of, a lot of experts who had been you know, sort of already tackling this question, and, and Marty brought them together. <clears throat> and so, excuse me, resilience really grew out of a desire to say, look, it's, it's not enough just to you know, help people recover and you know, try to mend them when they're broken. Yeah. Um, we need to understand how to help people find and build strength right. uh, when, you know, when the, the worst things happen to them, which, which they do. And it's, it's just exploded as a field of research. Um, there, there are researchers studying you know, how to build resilience in kids, uh, how to find resilience after divorce, after loss, um, how to help communities you know, build resilience right, together. Right. And, and part of what, what Cheryl and I were, I think, both really influenced by was just how much knowledge is out there that hasn't been shared more broadly yet. And it, it is, it's a new paradigm it's a new paradigm in American culture. And, you know, the three of us in very different ways are great examples of, you know, I mean, I think we, you know, I think we were probably born into this world of, you know, be successful, be powerful. Um, and, you know, the whole like American, like self-made man thing. And this, this is actually being reality-based and saying, don't expect that things will always progress and always get better because life is not like that. And um, I mean, even I remember having a conversation a few years ago with somebody who was working again in these like infrastructure sustainable uh, um, resilience and saying, you know, even sustainability is kind of an illusion that you can get to some place that is that is desirable to maintain. Um, and Cheryl, I think about you. You know, you are the chief operating officer of this incredibly powerful company and force in the world. I mean, you're, you as a human being and as a, as a professional person, you create order out of, you know, the, the constant potential of chaos. Um, and so I, I, I've got to imagine that this was also a paradigm shift in your approach to your life as, as Dave's death opened up, you know, just the ground beneath your feet. Krista, I have to say, I don't think Cheryl will tell you this, uh, but her co-author on Lean In, Nell Scovell, who edited this book with us, uh, once told me that she, just for a day she wanted to own Cheryl's brain because it would be so convenient to have like a brain full of color-coded sticky notes all perfectly organized. And we all live in constant envy of that. Uh-huh. I but, mean, so, I mean, but even more so, it must be just, it must have been such a shock to your system. It, it is such an astute question because, yes, until this happened, certainly I'd faced challenges. Everyone does. I had gotten divorced very young, and that was something that was hard for me to get over and process. 
But there yeah. was no order to this because it didn't make sense that a grown, healthy man who woke up in the morning and went on a hike could just die, literally could go to the yeah. gym and die. And out of nowhere, at 47 years old and, you know, wanting to feel and, you know, in many ways, this book and my story and I think the story of so many people facing hardship, which we tell in the book, is this balancing between no control, no order, accepting the grief, accepting your emotions and trying to find things we can do that give us some sense of control. And in that first bucket, I learned a lot. My friend Davis Guggenheim, who makes documentary films, he and his wife, Lisa, came and slept over uh, early on. And he just looked at me and said, you know, Cheryl, when I film movies and I do documentaries, I can't write them in advance. I have to let the story unfold. He knows me well. He said, Cheryl, your grief has to unfold. You cannot put it in a box and wrap it up. There is no sticky note for this. There is no Mm -hmm. Excel spreadsheet. And you have to let this happen. My rabbi told me to lean into the suck. Not what I meant. Yeah. Not what I meant by leaning. Yes. But what we're saying was, you have no control over your feelings here. And learning to accept the lack of control that I have was a huge part of this for me. But then, on the other hand, in the void, in the grief, in the isolation, as the mother of two grieving children, my children were seven and ten, mm-hmm. and they lost their father overnight. You want something to do. So there were moments where I was just desperate for anything I could do which I think did give me some sense of hope and some sense of control. And that's where the research and the steps the steps I could take came in. And I think as we face adversity in our life, and you know, this book is not just grounded in my experience and the research. This book is grounded in the stories of so many people from all different yes. circumstances facing all kinds of resilience. There is this balance between there are times we have to accept our feelings and let them happen and know there's nothing to do but just live through it. And there are times there are actually things we can do, and both can coexist. Yeah. Um, well, so let, let's talk about some of those practical learning, those tools for living um, that, that you've written about. And um, I mean, some of them are like, um, you were surprised early on that Adam counseled you to focus on worst case scenarios. Oh no! This was crazy. You said it's a f- that's you crazy. said it's a fine old Jewish tradition, so it made sense on some level, but it didn't make sense on another. I mean, Adam looked at me and said, "You should think about how things could be worse." And I thought to myself, "Dave just died suddenly. How can things be worse?" And he said, "He could have had that cardiac arrhythmia driving your children." I mean, in that instant, to this day, when I say that, I feel better. I'm like, "Okay, my kids are alive. I'm fine." Literally, because think about the devastation I felt with Dave and the devastation of losing all three of them in one instant, which happens. And all of a sudden, you're better. And because you would think that when you're trying to find a way forward, you want to think about happy thoughts. But actually, what you want to do is find gratitude, gratitude for what's Mm. left. And Mm. one way of doing that is think about how things could be worse. And that really did work because— The minute I thought about the fact that I'm lucky to still have my children alive, what I found was gratitude. Thank God my children are alive, and I can raise them, and I can raise them to know who their father was, who their father would have wanted them to be. Adam, where do you know scientifically how this is grounded in our psyches? 
It's a, well, <coughs> it's a strange yeah. way for well, us maybe. to be, but how does it work? Oh, I, I wish I had a good answer to that. Yeah. I, I will tell you that long before I read the research on it, um, we had a, um, a close family member, Jeff Zaslow, who was killed in a car accident. And I had a really hard time just dealing with how something so horrible and senseless could happen to someone so good. And um, Allison, my wife, has a background in psychiatry. And she, she was the one who taught me to consider how things could be worse. And I had the same reaction at the time that Cheryl did. Like, this is one of the most awful things that could happen to a person, to a family. How can you imagine it being worse? And after that, I, you know, I got really curious about how, did, how does that work? And I think the, I mean, there's, there's an evolutionary story to be told about it, which is that, you know, we're, we're wired to pay attention to bad things. Hmm. Right. Like if right. prehistorically, right. if you see something moving in the jungle and you're like, huh, it's orange with black stripes and yeah. sharp things coming out of its mouth. I wonder <laughs> if that could be a tiger. You would die. <laughs> Whereas if, right. if you immediately were like, tiger, run, you would <laughs> you would live and, and sort of survive and pass on your genes. And I think because of that, like a lot of times bad is stronger than good. And when something bad happens, it's really hard to replace the negative thoughts with positive ones. Mm. Mm. Um, and so it's almost like the, you know, thinking about how things could be worse. It's like a, it's a trick uh, that we, we use to capture our attention because we're so good at focusing on what's going wrong uh, that then we can, we can sort of take advantage of that wiring as opposed to trying to work against it. Mm. And Cheryl, as you said, you have drawn, you, both of you, you've drawn on a lot of data, but also a lot of other stories. I mean, there's a chapter called "The Elephant in the Room." Um, but what? But you know, what strikes me about that also is, and I think probably starting with that first Facebook post you wrote 30 days after Dave's death, um, it's not just that that elephant is, is in the room, but that you you suddenly you realize that unfathomable grief and loss are all around, walking around in all kinds of lives all around us. Did that, did Absolutely. That to, I mean, because you tell so many stories of things that people share with you or that you learn or that you see or take in in a different way. No, absolutely. What happens is that when bad things happen, we deal with the, the repercussions of that, the grief, the loss, the cancer treatments, the chemotherapy, the nausea, you know, the financial hardship of a parent going to prison. But then we also deal with all of the things that come from silence isolation, lack of support, mm. in many cases, shame. You know, if you want to silence a room, get diagnosed with cancer. No one knows mm. what to say. There's a really powerful story in the book of a young woman who um, was raped when she was in college. And she said that what was, e in her words, even harder than the rape was the silence of her friends who couldn't be there to support her because they couldn't talk about it. And you're right that there is a lot of adversity and a lot of hardship all around us, and it is not quiet in a room. It is an elephant, and it is following us. And what it does is it cuts us off from the human connection we need to get through things when we most need it. Mm -hmm. And so one mm -hmm. of the goals that Adam and I really set out to do with Option B is we want to help people talk about this. Now, not everyone's going to want to talk about everything at every moment in time. That's not what we're saying. But saying to someone, I acknowledge your pain, rather than ignoring yeah. it, saying, do you want to talk about it? I'm here. Being there with someone is so powerful and so, so done so infrequently. And I realized, having been on the other side of this, I got this wrong many times. 
If I had a friend, and I had many friends who've been diagnosed with cancer over the years, I used to say, I know you're going to get through it. And I would say it right. once and not mention it again. Okay. So what's wrong with that? A lot. Right. They don't know they're going to get through it. So when I say, I know you're going to get through it, what I'm actually doing, I thought I was being hopeful. But what I was really doing was not acknowledging the state they're in because the little voice in their head is saying, you don't know that I'm going to get through it. I don't know. And then I would never mention it again because I thought if I brought it up, I was reminding them they had cancer. Losing Dave right. taught me how ludicrous that was. You can't remind me I lost Dave. I know that. So when no one says anything, I just feel alone. It's not that I forget. And so now what I do, you know, if someone gets diagnosed with cancer, and unfortunately this has happened many times since I lost Dave, I will say to them, I know you don't know if you're going to get through this, and I don't know either, but you're not going to go through it alone. I'm here to help you. I'm here to do it with you. And then the next time I see them, I will ask them, how are you feeling? Not how are you, but how are you feeling? How is it going? Do you want to talk right, about this? Right. And sometimes right. they do and sometimes they don't. But I don't let the silence overtake our relationship. That's, it's so helpful. I, you also have this stunning sentence um, from somebody named Mitch Carmody. Um, Our child dies a second time when no one speaks their name. Just, yeah, that... <laughs> that was um, one of the, one of the things that happened in the the months after Dave passed away was uh, people started sending you know all sorts of stories and interviews and quotes and poems and Cheryl shared a lot of the most moving and meaningful ones with you know with a group of family and friends um, which I think really really helped us know what she was going through yeah. and I I know I was stopped cold when I read this this was from a you know a father who who lost a child. And found that afterward, people were afraid to mention it. Same thing that Cheryl was talking about. Yeah. They didn't want to remind him. And he, he wanted more than anything to remember his child. And that means we, we, have, to, we have to have the conversation. Um, Krista, I, I, I have to say I'm curious. Uh, one of the things you do as for a living is you ask people questions. <laughs> and you try to start conversations that we're silent about. Uh, I know it's something we all admire about you. Do you have, do you have favorite insights, suggestions for, for how to open up and how to kick the elephant out of the room? Oh, I don't, you know, I don't have, I, I don't have anything more, um, powerful or practical than, than all, than everything that's being named here. I just, you know, this is so, um, even just, even having the conversation about what, about the conversations we don't have, Right is opening up this space. Al um, <laughs> along, with, along with the book, we are launching the Option B community, following yeah. the model of, of what we did with Lean In, which is we really tried to bring people together so that they could share their own experiences. We're trying to do that with Option B as a community, give people resources, a connection to each other, a way to talk about different forms of adversity from grief to different forms of loss, to other, other forms of challenges. And what you hear from people over and over again is, I don't have a place to talk about this. People are afraid to mention this to me. And I know from the research we did on the book that when you express your feelings, and sometimes that can be just to yourself in a journal, sometimes it's to others, that enables us to process them. I also know that grief and adversity are just incredibly isolating. 
isolation is one of the core things everyone experiences. And, and that isolation cuts us off from the help we need when we need it most. And we are really hoping that both the book and the community can help, you know, get those elephants out of all of those rooms. Cheryl, I just want to, I want to read a paragraph in the book just because I, I, I feel like so many important, really practical tools have just been laid out. But here's another scenario you described. You said, people continually avoided the subject. I went to a close friend's house for dinner. And obviously, I know you're not saying that anybody means to to be doing it, right? This is just that we are we have to learn, right? Anyway, people continually avoided the subject. I went to a close friend's house for dinner, and she and her husband made small, small talk the entire time. I listened, listened, mystified, keeping my thoughts to myself. You're right. The Warriors are totally crushing it. And you know who really loved that team? Dave. I got emails from friends asking me to fly to their cities to speak at their events without acknowledging that travel might be more difficult for me now. Oh, it's just an overnight? Sure. I'll see if Dave can come back to life and put the kids to bed. I ran into friends at local parks who talked about the weather. Yes, the weather has been weird with all this rain and death. That's what it felt like. It, it, yeah, I mean, those are just such everyday interactions, right? Yeah, and no one meant harm by it. And I saw myself no. in a lot of those, those missteps that people made to me. When I saw people that I knew were facing real adversity, I would say, how are you? Figuring yeah. if they yeah. wanted to talk, they would talk. But it's so hard to bring this up. Well, how am I? Okay, my husband just died. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. I don't know how to parent my children alone. And I'm quite certain I'll never feel a moment of happiness again. I mean, that's not an answer to the question, how are you? But if you say to someone, how are you today? I know you are suffering. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. Then people can bring it up. And that for me is part of the lesson in this, that the elephant really needs to get kicked out of rooms. The other lesson here is, and this is another thing I really messed up before, is do something specific rather than offering to do anything. I used to do this Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. If anyone was going through something hard, I would say, is there anything I can do? And I meant it. I would have done anything they asked. But if you ask that question, not on purpose, but you're kind of shifting the burden to the person who needs the help. And it's hard to ask. It's hard to ask for the big things. It's hard to ask, you know, please make sure my kids and I are invited to somewhere for Thanksgiving dinner because if it's going to be just the three of us, that's going to be unbearably Mm -hmm. sad. Don't leave us alone for the Jewish holidays for the next 20 years. You can't ask that, or I couldn't. Even, you know, God, it would be so nice to have someone bring us dinner. That's hard to ask for, too. You can't—I had a hard time asking, and a lot of people have a hard time asking, so just do something specific. My amazing colleague, uh, Dan Levy, he and his uh, wonderful wife, they unfortunately lost their son. And in the, you know, Mm -hmm. long time they were in the hospital with him before he passed away— you know, he had some great examples. Friends would text him, what do you not want on a burger? Or I'm in the lobby of the hospital for a hug for the next hour, whether you want one or not. Those mm-hmm. were the people that mm-hmm. really helped. So urging people, just do something. Just do something mm-hmm. rather than ask if you can do anything. I think, again, kicks the elephant out of the room and shows people that you are there with them. Mm. You know, you, you um, quote just one of my favorite lines also from Annie Dillard. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And Adam, so much of your work is about 
the fact that we spend our days, so many of us, in places of work. And obviously, Cheryl, you've, you know, not just in terms of being COO of Facebook, but in terms of being on the platform of Facebook. I mean, this has happened all in, in, in that context as well as personally. How, how has this, this experience that you've had and the experience of your friendship working through this and the research this has prompted in you, Adam, how is this, um, how are you all thinking differently about how realizing this learning in workplaces? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying one of my favorite projects I ever worked on uh, was at Borders. Uh, the the bookseller that uh, <clears throat> had taken some really meaningful steps to try to stay a family as they grew. And what they were realizing was a lot of employees would face sort of life-qualifying events that they couldn't afford uh, to pay for. Um, you know, it was getting, uh, you know, like medical bills, your house is destroyed by a natural disaster. And they didn't know what to do. And so they, they started this sort of, it was a modified employee assistance program where you could apply for a grant to help you out uh, if you couldn't afford, you know, whatever adversity had brought into your life. And um, I had I'd studied how creating that program was a major source of people's commitment in the workplace, that, you know, they walked away feeling proud that they got to work somewhere that had a program like that, that cared about its people. They felt grateful that they were able to receive support and their colleagues were too if they needed it. And it was just this tremendously meaningful um, experience. And so uh, that, you know, I walked away from that really recognizing how important it is for organizations to take care of people, you know, not just at work, but their whole lives. And it has been remarkable to see the strides that Facebook has taken in recent years. For me, it has had a very big impact on work. Um, You know, one very fundamental thing, which I know sounds a little bit crazy because I do work at Facebook, is that I understood how important our product and our platform was in the face of grief in a way that Hmm. I just didn't before. My friend Kim had lost her brother. He died by suicide, and she's a very close friend. And at the time, it was years ago, she told me they they were too upset to have a funeral, but Facebook is how they kept his memories alive. And so I had heard mm-hmm. that, but experiencing it was a different thing. So many people came up to me. They had stories about Dave. I, I could barely know where I was, let alone keep track of those stories. And I really want to preserve those memories for myself, but also for my children who you know, lost their father so young. A lot of their memories will be from other people, which is so heartbreaking, but it makes those memories so precious. Well, they're on Facebook. To this day, people yeah. post to his page, and they're real, and I have his profile, and 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 those stories exist. The other thing face that happened to me through this was understanding how important work relationships are. I've always talked yeah. about bringing your whole self to work. I've always been very close with my colleagues. Mark and I have been very good friends ever since we started working together. But what I learned about how you can support a colleague really from Mark's example through this is one of the lessons of my life. I mean, Mark, I called him from the hospital and told him Dave had died. He was one of the first people at my house the next day when I got home. He planned the funeral. He called all of the people who worked for me and him himself to let them know. He Mm. invited me to come back to work when I wanted, and he also told me to take as much time as I needed. And when I came back, he really rebuilt my confidence. My first day back, I, I could barely focus, let alone 
you know, say anything sensible. And I thought I really embarrassed myself several times. So that night I called Mark and said, maybe I shouldn't be there. Like, I'm just not functioning. I said all these really stupid things. And he said, no, those are fine. Those are normal mistakes. Anyone would make those. You've made those before. Here are the two things you said that really (laughs) helped us. Hmm. And then on a personal level, you know, he and Priscilla, they are still to this day at my house incredibly regularly to play with my children. They do homework with my kids. That's a lot of homework help. But they, they, they were going to make sure that I got through it. Mark, when I thought no one was talking to me at work and I needed someone to cry to, it was Mark. And we would go into his conference room and shut the door. And I cried to him over and over. And he would say to me over and over, you're doing better than you think. People do want to talk to you. We just have to help them figure out how. And that kind of support makes a huge difference. Hmm. And I know, you know, very few people in the whole world can have a, a boss as supportive in every way as Mark. And I hope people see that example and they feel more comfortable not just supporting the people they work with through the very important necessary things like time off, but also helping them rebuild their confidence and talking to them about their emotions. Yeah, I mean, even just the... The ways you've been speaking about how to talk to people, the question, you know, the, the difference between the question of how are you and how are you today, um, those, because how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, those, those I think are, are, are tools for our work, for our working life, right, with our colleagues as well as friends or people we know outside of work. Um, are you there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Krista, I just want to make sure. Okay. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I, what, I, I always thought that like, what mattered most in our work and our lives was the big moments, you know, the, the day you got a promotion, uh, the, the major success, the, you know, the project that really helped other people. Um, and in our personal lives, you know, your wedding day and yeah. when you get to welcome your first child, and of course, those moments are incredibly meaningful and memorable. But when I, when I started yeah, I guess learning more about the evidence as a psychologist, I was struck that you know it's it's actually not the intensity of your positive experiences. It's the frequency that mm. really matters mm. for you know how much how much happiness you find in life. And you know, that that has pretty big implications for thinking about how you plan your life, right? <laughs> like it's yeah. it's not actually the the big moments that matter most. It's it's what um, Tim Urban, the blogger, says is like the joy you find on hundreds of forgettable Wednesdays. <laughs> and of, of course, it would be great to make all those Wednesdays less forgettable, mm. but it's actually those daily moments of joy that that really matter. And and one of the things that uh, that I, I learned from from Cheryl's experience is how hard it is to rediscover joy when something horrible happens that turn your, turns your life upside down. And, you know, the, the idea of giving yourself permission just to feel joy again. I remember Cheryl saying, yeah, how, how could I be happy? I don't deserve to be happy. Dave is gone. Hmm. Uh, you know, to, to say, well, actually, you know, that's, that's the last thing that, that Dave would want is for you to continue to be miserable. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is something we really hope happens with option B. You know, the question is, how do we get through adversity and how do we support other people going through adversity? And it is both acknowledging the elephant and talking to people and being there to hold them as they cry. But it's also helping them find joy 
and giving ourselves and others that permission. After Dave died, I think it was about four months later, I was at a friend's bar mitzvah and a childhood friend pulled me onto the dance floor to dance to a song I loved in childhood. And a minute in, I just burst into tears. I mean, it was embarrassing. I had to be kind of ushered out of the room really quickly. And I didn't really know what was wrong. And then I realized what was wrong is I felt okay. I felt okay. For one minute, four months later, I felt happy. I was with a, a high school friend dancing to a high school song. It was like, you know, I was transported to a place where it was okay. And I felt so guilty feeling happy. And the very next day I was in Washington, my kids and I went to visit Adam and Allison and their kids. And I told Adam this story. And he looked at me and said, well, of course you haven't felt happy. You don't do a single thing that would make anyone happy since Dave died. You don't do a thing. He said, you're waiting to feel better to do something that will make you happy. But really, it goes the other way. And what he said was, let's, let's talk about what you do, <laughs> right? You go to work. You take care of your kids. You write in your journal and cry. Those are all important <laughs> things. But mm. you have to give yourself permission to watch TV, play a game, mm. even mm. these little things. And the, the big aha of I think I was waiting to feel better to feel happy. Well, I couldn't go out to dinner with anyone because I might cry uh, or I couldn't watch a TV right. show because it would remind me of Dave. You actually find happiness in the small things by taking those steps. And so my kids and I, I started deciding, okay, I'm going to do things that might make someone happy, even if I feel miserable doing them. I started watching TV again. I started watching Game of Thrones again. I decided yeah. I was going to take things back. My kids and I would take things back because along and with— And Dave had read all of the books, is that right, from Game of Thrones? I was avoiding anything that reminded me of Dave. But since yeah. all of the fun activities I had done before I did with Dave, I was therefore— avoiding anything fun. One day I took Settlers of Catan off the shelf. You know, Dave, Dave, last time I saw him, we were playing that game. That was the game the four of us played all the time. And I looked at my kids and I said, who wants to play? And they just looked up and said, we do. We haven't played in so long. <laughs> and then my daughter went for gray to be gray. And Dave was always gray. And my son said, you can't be gray. That was daddy's color. And she said, but I want to be gray. Mm. And I said, yes, you can, because we're going to take it back. We're going to be gray. You're going to play gray in daddy's uh, honor. And we took uh, it back. We took back Catan. We took back gray. I took back Game of Thrones. We took back Scrabble. We took back cheering for the sports teams Dave loved. And it actually, those little things add up, not just to moments of happiness, but because you can have moments of happiness, moments of strength. And the thing is, I mm. really needed permission. I felt guilty I felt guilty. And this is a common reaction to adversity. Someone dies. Even when we had nothing to do with the death, we have survivor guilt. Someone loses their job. Other people, you know, if you didn't lose your job, how can I be happy when my friends lost a job? Someone goes to prison. I have my freedom. How can I be happy? And along with all the hardship we face, you know, this guilt is a thief of joy. Hmm. My brother-in-law, hmm. in an unbelievably generous move, called me months after Dave died, you know, crying. I could hear it in his voice saying, all Dave ever wanted was for you to be happy. Don't take that away from him in death. And I want so desperately for option B to give people the permission my brother-in-law gave me and Adam explained to me, which is, it's okay to try to be happy. In fact, you should. Watch TV, go on a walk, have a cup of coffee, whatever it is, these little tiny things that help you rediscover joy 
over time, they don't just give us joy, they give us strength. It's, and also, you're modeling that for your children, right? I mean, it's not just, it's not just how you are with them, but how they see you. And I want to talk a little bit about what you've learned about, I mean, let me just say that the story of you coming home from vacation to tell them that their father had died. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's unimaginable. Um, but you, you also experience your children in not just enduring, but, but moving through life. And it feels to me like this, this notion of resilience also changes the way you think about parenting qualitatively that, you know, this idea, it isn't about having a backbone, about strengthening the muscles around our backbone. I wonder if both of you could say a little bit about that. I mean, you're both parents, but. Cheryl, did you, you start? I mean, that was, there were so many truly horrible moments. People have asked me what was the worst moment. There's a lot of competition for that slot, right? <laughs> Finding okay. Dave, telling my kids, burying him. Like, there's so many vast moments. But even with very stiff competition, the moment where I sat down on that couch with my parents and my sister to tell my kids they would never see their father again, it is unimaginable, even for me, even having lived through it. And, you know, the screaming and the wailing and what happened was horrible. Mm. And then I think maybe an hour in, my son looked at me and said, thank you, Mommy, for being here to tell me yourself. And then when I put Mm. my kids to bed that night, my daughter looked at me and said, I don't just feel bad for us. I feel bad for Grandma Paula and Uncle Rob because they lost him too. And I thought about how in the very, very worst moments of their lives, my kids were able to think about other people. And that gave me hope. I marvel at their resilience. I absolutely marvel. My kids and I um, were just talking about what to do this Father's Day. You know, there are these days on the calendar that just, it never occurred to me how painful Father's Day must be for millions of families, and now I know. And so months in advance, we're right now trying to get through yet another Father's Day. And my son said, this time, why don't we go have fun? All day, we'll have fun, just like Daddy would have wanted. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And you you also have written that you you stop worrying in the same way when setbacks and disappointments come into your kids' lives. Oh my Do god. You understand. Oh yeah, right? when 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 we are having a normal kid problem. You know, I didn't do well on a test. <laughs> All my friends made the soccer team, the advanced soccer team and I didn't. You know, my lunch spilled in the water and I had nothing to eat. That happened yesterday. I am just <laughs> over flooded with relief. I'm like, oh, a normal kid problem. This is not mm. death. Like literally, mm. I'm I'm relieved. Like those mm. problems that seemed so big before are mm. tiny and small and completely surmountable. And it's not just me. I'm not the only one with this perspective. My kids have it. A few weeks ago, my son's basketball team lost in the playoffs. And all the other kids were super upset. And I looked at my son, I said, How are you? And he looked at me, he goes, Mom. This is sixth grade basketball. I'm fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He's like, we've been through a lot. I'm not going to get upset about sixth grade basketball. Now, I would mm. never wish that perspective on anyone exceptionally, you know, especially my child. But he yeah. does have it, and it is a form of post-traumatic growth, and it is a valuable life lesson. Yeah. 
Adam, how do you, I mean, you also carry around all this data and this research and you're always immersed in it. I mean, how do you, how do, do you apply that to your life as a parent? You know, I've always wanted to be one of those psychologists who doesn't screw up my children. So, <laughs> Oh my God, Adam I, has I, the greatest children. It. They yeah. are the cutest, uh, sweetest, uh, smartest. <laughs> They're adorable. No comment. But so, so you try not to have them as research subjects and guinea pigs. Yeah, as as much as possible. But you know, I, I will say the the thing that that psychology has just underscored for me is just how important it is for kids to know that they matter. And Mattering is, I mean, it's it's a really basic but important idea that I think as parents a lot of us lose sight of, that the kids need to know that, that other people notice them, care about them, and even rely on them. Mm-hmm. And that just becomes all the more important in the face of hardship, right? When when you're feeling that, that isolation that Cheryl was describing, that lack of control, um, you know, to know that, that other people are paying attention to you, that they're involving you in conversations, that they're, you know, letting you make some choices, um, and even, you know, sometimes seeking your advice is, is so important. And this is, uh, you know, this is one of the things that uh, that Allison and I have, have spent a lot of time on with our kids is, you know, just making sure that they have a say, right, in the, in the mm-hmm. big decisions that we make and the small ones too. And, you know, that, that is a source of strength, right? Because that means they don't end up constantly looking to adults for direction every time there's a decision to make right, or right, every right. time something difficult happens. They, they know that they can rely on their own judgment. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that that is, that is one of the most striking things for me. Of, I, just looking back to that, that first time I, I went to dinner with, with Cheryl and Dave and their kids is how many questions they asked their children, but also how they taught their children to ask questions of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think their, their kids might have been eight and 10 uh, at that point. And I don't remember ever being asked questions by children so young before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, you know, I guess that's modeling, showing other people that they matter. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that's such an important skill that probably we could all do a better job at teaching as parents. Adam, I'm also curious about the connection of this this kind of uh, collection of things we're talking about, resilience, adversity, and to 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 your work on giving and originality um, as you've lived this in friendship with Cheryl and in your research, how does resilience flow into those things? Generosity, it's, originality, creativity. It's it's really been at the heart of a lot of my work, and yeah, you know, I, di- I didn't realize it. I didn't see it as clearly as I do now. But you know, I, when I think about what I do as a psychologist, my goal is to figure out how we can all find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. And resilience is at the heart of that. I've you know I spent a lot of my career studying why givers burn out. You know, what happens when when generous people exhaust themselves uh, or just, you know, when no good deed goes unpunished. And what you need in that situation more than anything else is, you know, the strength to persevere. Um, You need places, you know, to to find energy, um, you know, to rejuvenate your motivation. And, you know, as far as originality is concerned, um, I don't know a creative person who has not faced just extreme rejection and failure and disappointment over and over and over again. 
and the you know the ability to persist to keep trying to try new ideas new ways of solving problems um, is one of the the strongest forces that that drives whether people are able to you know, to move the world around them and so you know I guess I, I've come to think of resilience as a critical skill for uh, for living a meaningful life and for living it according to your own values mm. And uh, I think I'm now much more aware of that than I was before. Yeah, I I actually wanted to um, I wanted to kind of come to a close with the notion of wisdom, which is connected to a meaningful life, and which it seems to me throughout this your writing together about this um, in the book, wisdom is you know it's that resilience is also a building block of wisdom. Um, as much as it is healing and 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 kind of surviving and flourishing, um, you know, I've I've done some writing myself about wisdom in recent years, and I never defined it in my writing. And so people have asked me how I define it, and I've said that um, as I've thought about that, I've I've said that uh, you know, wisdom can be connected to things like knowledge and accomplishment, certainly. But those are things you can point at, right? You can, you can point at somebody and say they're knowledgeable, they're intelligent, they're, they're accomplished. But that the measure of wisdom is the imprint that a life makes on other lives around it. And I thought of that, Adam, when I was reading something you wrote about Dave. Um, you, after his death, you said, I don't believe this happened for a reason, but it has given us all a reason to be more present parents, more loving spouses, more supportive friends, and more caring leaders. The overwhelming sentiment from everyone who knew Dave is that he inspired us to be better human beings, and he had that effect on us throughout his life long before we lost him. Um, yeah, I, I so believe this. I mean, Dave Dave lived an incredible life. He was so generous. I've never seen this done at a funeral, but our friend Xander, in his eulogy, asked the people in the audience— how many of you had your life changed by Dave Goldberg? And a sea of hands went up. To this day, I meet people regularly who don't don't just say, oh, I met Dave. They say, Dave changed my life, and here's how. He gave me this piece of advice, which led to this career decision. I, mm. He told me he goes home for dinner with his kids, so I started going home for dinner with my kids. And these are mm. people I, I haven't even heard. I'd never even met or heard of. And so Dave lived this really... Um, really amazingly generous life. He lived a purposeful life. He was brilliant and funny and present and just such a good friend. And I think, you know, he, I think all the time about how he, I think, I mean, no one knows, but I don't think he knows he died. A cardiac arrhythmia happens suddenly and immediately, and I don't think he knows unless there's heaven and there's no way for me to know that. But if he did know, just like he wanted some good to come out of his life for other people, I think he would want that from this. And so mm -hmm. if this book can help other people recover even a little bit or help other people help someone else in need, then it is honoring the life he led. There's an amazing story in the book of someone Adam knows named Joe Casper, and he was a doctor. And even though yeah. he dealt with life and death, he wasn't prepared for his own son to die. And when his own son died, even though he's still a practicing physician, he had a chance to start counseling other bereaving, bereaved parents. He went to 
grad school in psychology, met Adam, who was one of his teachers, and took this on. And he came up with this concept he calls co-destiny, that by doing good in his son's name, by helping other parents with what he's been through, he's extending his son's legacy. And I think that if option B helps anyone, nothing could be a better way of extending Dave's legacy because had he been alive today, he would be doing so much good. And so if some Mm -hmm. good can be done in his memory and in his name and in his spirit, it honors the life he he lived. And for me, that has all the meaning in the world. Hmm. Adam, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I, gosh, there's very, very little to add to that. I, I will just say that, um, you know, the, the, uh, Dave was, Dave was extraordinary in many ways. And the, he just, he saw the good in everyone and he went out of his way to be a friend to so many people. And, you know, I guess my hope is that, you know, that, that, that comes through in the way that, you know, that, that Cheryl has gone on to help people, um, with the wisdom that she gained, that she never wanted to gain, but she did. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. Is, is wisdom a word that you think about as a psychologist or <laughs> what would your it definition is. be? I, I, it took me a little while to, to, to come to that. Um, yeah, there's, there's actually, there's a body of research on Mm -hmm. wisdom. Mm -hmm. Cheryl likes to say that the psychologists have a name for everything (laughs) and a definition for everything. Uh, and we do, but I think sometimes it helps with just communicating clearly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, wisdom usually gets defined just as, you know, actually having knowledge about how to live a good life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's really hard to define because there's so many different yeah, ways yeah. to think about what it means to have a good life. But yeah. you know, I think there's there's no question that, that Dave lived one. Well, one there's thing, this, yeah. sorry, one Go thing on. that's really at the heart of this book is post-traumatic growth. So, yeah. and and Adam, Adam, you know, it, Adam sharing with me the research on post-traumatic growth, which I then, you know, learned. Can you yeah. grow from trauma and? You absolutely can. And that doesn't mean you'd shake the growth. I'd much rather have Dave and give back all the growth. But since that's not an option, we grow. We grow by by strengthening. I know I'm stronger than I was before because I've lived through this, and my kids do too. We grow because we have deeper relationships, more meaning. My work at Facebook has more meaning. We grow by finding more gratitude, gratitude for my kids being alive, something that really I took for granted before. I think one of the questions we are asking in this book is, can you have pre-traumatic growth? And I absolutely Uh. think you can. I would give anything to go back and live with Dave with the sense of gratitude I have for every day that I have now. Anything, Mm. you know? What would Mm. I have done if I had known we only had 11 years? What would I have done on that last day when we went on a hike and, you know, he walked with the guys and I walked with the girls, you know? If I could go back and share with him the gratitude I feel now, that would be incredible, but I can't. But what I can do is try to live my life going forward with that gratitude, and other people who haven't experienced trauma can get that gratitude now. Two months ago, my cousin Laura turned 50, and I called her the morning of her birthday, and I said, Laura, I'm calling to say happy birthday, 
But I'm also calling because in case you woke up this morning with that, oh, my God, I'm 50, I'm getting old thing. We all do. (laughs) I want to tell you that I'm so glad you're 50 because this is the year that Dave won't turn 50. And it turns out, I never thought about this before, but there's only two options. We either grow older or we don't. And it is an honor and privilege to turn 50. And I am so grateful that you are alive and in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to roll my eyes at birthdays and either not celebrate them or, oh, my God, I'm getting old. If I get to grow old, I will be so grateful. And that gratitude, with all the sadness that still lingers, makes my life deeper, richer, meaningful, and in some ways has a different kind of meaning and joy. And I think, and we know this to be true, that there's pre-traumatic growth. You could get this without the trauma. My friend Katie Middick, after Dave died, uh, she started writing long letters to her friends, including me. I was lucky enough to get one on their birthday, hmm. telling them why, why she loved them. And a friend of hers started doing the same thing. That friend of hers had no experience with trauma that we know of. She wasn't a friend of Dave's. She just copied what Katie was doing. That's pre-traumatic growth. She is expressing and feeling more gratitude for her friends without the trauma. And if option B can not just help us recover but help us rediscover joy but help people get the growth you get through trauma without the trauma, nothing could be more in keeping with the life Dave Goldberg led. Oh, Cheryl, I, I wanted, I just want to thank you so. I'm so glad I got to have this conversation with you and with the two of you, and and now, and your honesty and the generosity with which you share, um, and your desire, the desire that you both have, and that's kind of become part of your friendship to share this learning with others. It's really beautiful, and it's a real gift to me. Um, in my day, and I look forward to sharing it, to putting it out into the world, and. Um, so, you know, again, thank you both so much for writing this and, and for making this time. Well, thank just... you so much. This was, um, this was an incredibly uh, insightful interview. So I really, really appreciate the opportunity to reach your audience, but also to talk to you. <laughs> I don't know if you yeah, want. Well, We're going to do, I'm going to do one book. We're going to do, I don't remember. Adam, are you coming to Minneapolis? No, you're missing. Oh, are you coming to Minneapolis? Minneapolis? I'm coming to Minneapolis. Unfortunately, when Adam is, is blowing me off. Um, I will send. I will have my team send your team an email. Yes, I would um, love to meet you would, if you feel like coming to a book event. Yeah, absolutely. I hope I I, if, I will hope I'm in town, and if I am, I'll, I'll make that happen. That'd be it's terrific. June fifth. Great. Oh, well, I don't think I'm June here. 5th June fifth. I think I'm in California. June fifth. I don't know if you're back on the sixth. You're probably not back if you're in California. Anyway, we'll send you the details yeah. in case you can come. So okay. All right. Well, somehow our paths will cross. Yes. Um, and just thank you for this. Thank yeah. you. And Adam, Krista, always, thank always. Thank you. It's a treat as always. Yeah, that's right. All right. So we'll be in touch. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>